We are looking at the qualities of maturity. We are on part two of peace. We're going to be primarily in 1 Samuel 25, but we've got some other verses of Scripture to take a look at. For those who have not been here, or just to review some of our things that we have done. Qualities we've looked at so far, the first one was steadfast. That is us not being able to be pushed off of something. You are not moved by the persecution that comes against you, the obstacles that are, that are there. Patience, it's, not a, it's about me not moving myself off, not getting my emotions all stirred up, not feeling like I deserve something different, something more, something better, and just moving off, but we're patient, we wait. Calm is about not speaking words and running off. Calm is about speaking words out of our mouth that God has given us everything that we need. And I don't have to be fretful, anxious, worry. I can be a calm. Last week we began to look at peace. Peace is about what my spoken words are giving off. A person who is at peace is not speaking words of strife, not speaking words of worry, not speaking words of anxiety. A person of peace speaks words of peace. There are some people who are a person of peace on Monday, but not on Tuesday. <laughs> Wednesday but not on Thursday. You know, they don't, they don't get too many consecutive days in which they are at peace. That's not a person of peace. That's a person who's striving for and really only obtaining human peace. And we can obtain a certain level of peace amongst ourselves by our own strength, but it's not God's peace. God's peace is a peace that passes all understanding. If we're going to become a person of peace, that's the kind of peace that we need to have. Last week we were looking at what are the words that you are speaking, giving off. What will you leave the people that you are speaking your words to? Are they words of peace or are they words of turmoil? Are they words of correction or are they words of tearing down? Are they words of encouragement or are they words of flattery? Your words can be good words. They can leave others with peace, but they can also be words that leave them with the opposite. Now mature people, they control their words. Immature people don't. The level of your maturity will dictate how well you control your words in the intensity of the situation. I may have enough maturity to dictate my words at a level three. But I hit level four, my words start going crazy. But then as I mature and as I learn, I can handle level four. But then level five gets me. Now don't ever get down because level five got you. If you don't ever get into level five and find out that your words are going a little crazy there, then you never get tested. You got to get out there at level five and get tested. If you fail, that's all right. Go back to God. Go say, well, God, I, I found my limit. <laughs> that's all right. We're going to go past that limit. God's not up there trying to beat you with a whip saying, see that? You're not good. No, he's saying, no, that's just your limit. Let's get past that. Let's do some things and get ourselves past that. That's all God wants. He just wants you to be able to get past it. Let's get to a higher level of maturity. He's on your side. He's not against you. Mature people, they control their words. They speak from their spirit, not from their flesh. What's it take to get you to start to speak from your flesh? That's your level. They listen to inspiration from the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus have to say about his life? I say only what the Father says. I do only 
what I see the Father do. Now, there are times that a mature person, they don't have to say a thing. Don't ever find yourself getting into those catchphrases. You know, we've got a lot of catchphrases that we throw out. Sometimes we're not even thinking about them. Every once in a while, I start to catch a winter one. Oh, yeah, I got a catchphrase. And then you, I can hear it in my, myself. I can hear it in other people. I got to get rid of that catchphrase. I don't like that one anymore. And, you know, you, you, you work to get in that. But if you ever say those catchphrases like, I just have to say this. Uh, no, you don't. You do not have to say it. Don't be telling yourself that you have to say it. I've gone over a few of those catchphrases before. I'm not going to spend time to go over all of them. But, you know, there are things like, you know, well, to be honest with you. I mean, do you really think about that? What's that saying? Well, there's other times I'm not honest with you. But you know what? Right now, I think I'll be honest with you. Or you just start out honestly. Really? Is it ever dishonestly? No, there's just some of those things we just pick up. We don't mean them. We're not thinking about them. We just say them. But quit saying them. You don't need to do it. Just If, if you catch yourself doing it, don't get under guilt and condemnation. Just change it. You don't have to do it. You don't have to say that. Mature people first listen to how their words will sound. They're not in a rush. They think, hmm, how is this going to sound to the, to the people that are hearing these? They think about the effects those words will have. And if silence is best, they stay silent. That's a mature person. Now this week we're going to take a look at some other aspects of peace, and that is the aspect of being a peacemaker. Those people who make peace. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now some Christians have just resigned themselves to the fact that I am not a peacemaker. And they just go about and they, they just do what they're going to do. Well, that's not my call. I'm not called to be a peacemaker. That's just not for me. Uh, wrong. That is not correct. One who is a peacemaker, I'm giving you three things here. One who is a peacemaker is focused more on making peace than establishing, first off, goodness. Or, you can write what's right. A peacemaker is focused more on making peace than establishing goodness or what's right. Truth or exposing lies and falsehoods. And judgment or their view and opinion. A person who is a peacemaker is more focused on making peace than what is good, what is truth, and what is judgment. These things are not unimportant. But whatever it is that we do, we grade importance. You know, way back before VCRs. How many remember back before the days of VCR? <laughs> Max and I were just talking about those days. He was reminding me about the time, the time before the VCRs, right? You don't, do you even know what a VCR is? Yeah, that's just like a tape, yeah. Because tapes weren't around when, when you were young. We don't do tapes anymore. We do discs and hard drives and floppy disks, yeah. That was around when they had actual floppy disks. They actually flopped. But 
Well, we didn't have all that. And, of course, back then we only had three stations, maybe four. And you had something on the TV. You had to decide. What are you going to watch? Am I going to watch? What was the, what was the big thing that, that all the kids used to like to watch on Sunday? Was Sunday night at the movies? Was that a, I remember uh, my pastor, uh, for a number of years, he was talking about how uh, all his generation prayed in the VCR. <laughs> <laughs> because Sunday night service would always come on and they couldn't be at home and watch ABC Sunday night at the movies or whatever it was that, that had the, the thing on. And so they would always miss it. And, uh, but now the VCR came out, they were able to tape it and, and do all that. But before all that, you had to prioritize. You had to decide, am I going to watch this show or this show? And so you'd have to, you know, you'd have one tape. You could put one tape in the VCR. You can tape one show. And then they came out with the DVR. Now, we just got rid of our DVR. We had it for, I don't know, two decades, something like that, in a while. And our, our, our particular one allowed us to record two shows at the same time. Two. But you had to decide. If there were three shows on that you might want to watch, then you had to decide which two do you want to watch. And there were times that happened. And so what I would do is I'd say, well, when's this show going to come on again? And if it came on again, then I'd, I'd find it, you know, when it, would, when it would be there. Now, of course, they have, everybody's uh, got the online DVRs and you record everything online and you don't have any limitation. You can record 15 shows at the same time if you want to. But before we had to make choices. So if you can think back to when you had to make choices and you had to prioritize, this is, this is kind of what you're doing here. You have to prioritize. Goodness, things that are good, that's important. Truth is important. There are certain things you have to make a judgment on and that's important. But we have to scale them out. What happens with religious people is their priorities have gotten out of, out of balance. And they're prioritizing some good things, but they're prioritizing some good things over better things. And that's where they get into the problem. When Jesus came on the scene, they were taking some things that were a priority, presenting them to him, but he didn't value them as much as he did others. The woman who came, who caught in the, the um, act of adultery, they brought her to him. But see, his priorities were different than theirs. Their priorities gave them two choices, stoner or uh, say that the law of Moses is not valid today. And uh, you can make your decision which one you want to do. But that's all they saw. Jesus had other options. He saw other things as being important. When you get to be a peacemaker, you have to have the right kind of priorities. You have to be able to, to make judgments on things and know, all right, that's important, but it's not this important. It's not important to go into this direction. So, you, judgment, when you come into the place of judgment, that's the third one, that's basically your application of what I think is good and true. That's your application of it. Now, there's a phrase that a lot of kids use that kind of encapsulates all of these things. You may have used this phrase. Max, you may, Mia, you may have used this phrase, I don't know, maybe once or twice. But something goes on in the house, and dad says something, mom says something, and out of our mouth comes these words. That's 
not fair. Anybody ever said that? Maybe at work, somebody got promoted and you thought you should have, and in your mind you're thinking what? That's not fair. That's not, that's not fair. Why? Because according to what I consider to be good, what I consider to be truth, and by the judgments I make based on that goodness and that truth, that's not right. Now let me ask you this question. Have you ever made a judgment based on what you have heard and you have determined from what you have heard that certain things are good and certain things are truth and you come out with a judgment only to find out a week later that what you heard wasn't quite right. And when you heard the new information, what was good and what was true changed. And as soon as that happens, what happens to the judgments? Changes. Because, oh, wait a minute. That wouldn't be good if that goes on. If, if, if Lissy comes into the kitchen and she says, Mama, can I have a cookie? And Mama looks at her and says, Oh, the poor dear, she's worked so hard. Look at all the things she's done. She's changed three diapers and mopped the floor and done some vacuum. Of course you can have a cookie. And then Chenzo comes into the kitchen and says, how come she has a cookie? Well, she's been working. She's been doing something. Yeah, but she already had five. Oh, did that change things? See, new information came in. Suddenly what was good, suddenly what was true, changed. And our judgment at the end changed as well. Now, let me ask you this question. Think back. How many have been Christians longer than 10 years? I know little you know, ones haven't been around that long, but been Christians long. Can you think back to 10 years ago? Do you believe everything that you believed 10 years ago is it the same today? Have, you, have some of the things changed? Because you've learned some more things? So that would mean that what you determined what was good 10 years ago what you determined was truth 10 years ago has changed. Does that not also mean that your judgments would change? If what you see as good has been altered because your understanding of the God's Word has increased, if what you understand as true has changed because what you understand from God's Word has changed, would not your judgments also change? Think of some things that 10 years ago you would have been passionate about and would have stirred up some trouble if it wasn't held true. And 10 years later, you may not even believe that thing to be true. And yet, you would have disrupted peaceful situations to hold to that goodness or that truth that you felt was dire and so important. This is why you have to be careful about what things you hold on so much that you will disrupt the peace in order to hold on to what is good and what is true and the judgments that you have made because of it. Because what you understand is not full. 
But when you come into a situation, you need to be a peacemaker. It is hard to be a peacemaker when you hold on to what you believe to be good, what you believe to be true. I can give you a case. I've told you about this one before, but it's, it's the easiest case I have to, to do. Because um, uh, how long ago was it? 40 years ago? I believed that Jesus Christ was coming back after the tribulation. I was adamant. I was so good, I could... I went to a Baptist college. They said they were independent, but Kings was not independent. They were Baptist. They believed in a pre, uh, pre-rapture theory. Everybody in the school believed in a pre-rapture theory. My professor believed in a pre-rapture theory. I was a freshman. I opted out of all the freshman Bible classes because, to me, they were beneath me. <laughs> but, see, I tested out of them. They gave me a test. I passed the test. I tested out of them. I went into second year. I'm in second year classes with, with sophomores and juniors and in some of the Bible classes, and we're talking about some of these things. And I shot their arguments to pieces as a freshman. They didn't want me to raise my hand. They didn't want me to ask questions anymore. I remember discussions we had in the, in the uh, uh, lobby at King's, and I disrupted the very foundations of many a Baptist person. Because what they believed, I shook it to the core. Shook, I, I could shred you. If you came in and, and tried to argue that, I could shred you. And I did. I'm not proud of that. I just, that's what I did. And um, I went to Rhema. Rhema believed in a pre-rapture theory. Brother Hagen believed in a pre-rapture theory. He talked about it often. They had an eschatology class. I went to the eschatology class. It bored me. They used all the exact same arguments. I could shoot holes in every single one of them. Got me upset. Went on back, ran the camera, didn't take any notes, got an A in the class, answered the questions the way they wanted, just went on through it. Graduated from Ramah, still believing that Jesus Christ was not coming back before the tribulation. Finally, I had found, found somebody who asked the exact same questions, shot the same holes in the, the uh, uh, pre-rapture theory, and finally asked it. It didn't take me more than one or two days to change my belief. Because once I saw it's in Scripture, I change it. Oh, well, he came came out and says, this doesn't teach the rapture. I said, I know it doesn't. But no one else seems to think that. And so we went through. It was was a wonderful time. I changed everything and switched back over and never made the switch back. But, But you see, I disrupted a lot of situations. I came in and disrupted a lot of people's peace on something that wasn't truth. But it was my truth. It's what I saw as being good. And I found out something was different. There's a lot of things that we are holding true to, that we hold as good, and that we are willing to disrupt the peace on, that really (laughs) may not mean anything to us five or ten years later. When we were young, and we had that special toy, and somebody broke it, we are ready to disrupt the peace in the household. Or somebody took it. We are ready to disrupt the peace. But five years down the road, we don't even care about that toy anymore. But at the moment, it's the most important thing that we have. We have to be careful how much we hold things near and dear 
because five years from now, that won't matter. But what will matter is what did you do as a peacemaker? What did you do? He said, the peacemakers are blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How many want to be called the sons of God? Yeah. All right. Well, there's your path. Now, the word paints a, a different picture here, an objective that most Christians have. Ephesians 4.3 says, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How many Christians do you know are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Most of the time, we are eager to maintain the truth as we know it. We are more eager to maintain the truth as we know it than we are the peace. Just like this, if you came across somebody and they say, well, the gifts of the Spirit, they aren't today, how many of those are fighting words? Those are, let's go, let's go at it, we're, you and me, we're, we're, <laughs> we're ready to, we got to be careful which things we're willing to go, to go to blows on. Now, I'm not telling you that there's nothing out there not worth going to blows on. You'll find that out as we go through some of these scriptures. I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you, you got to be careful as to which ones that you pick. Because we're called to be peacemakers. We're not called to be ones who bring in strife. Don't bring in the strife. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace. Strive for peace. He didn't say strive for truth, did he? Isn't that interesting? How important is truth in the Word of God? It's pretty important, isn't it? But apparently, peace goes a little bit higher. There's a reason for it. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. What? Live in peace and the, love, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Well, if I got to do all those things in that list for a God of peace to be living with me, hmm. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace and the love of God and peace will be with you. We'll get up on some fun with that verse, but we're just looking at the overall concept here. Romans fourteen seventeen, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What are you supposed to pursue? The things that make for peace. Let us pursue what makes for peace, not what makes for strife. This is important. This changes your attitude on things. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there's the full context of all this. Eager to maintain the unity of the bond of peace. He's a prisoner. How many know he's getting some things done that are not fair in the prison? He has been a prisoner often. He says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. As a prisoner for the Lord, He's been a prisoner. He knows what it's like to be in prison. In, in prison, your will is not your own. But he says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Whatever he wants me to do, 
I do it. Whatever he wants me to do, I do it. I am eager to be a peacemaker. I am eager to get into this. When you are a prisoner in the natural, he's using that as a comparison. Let's go on. We've got some more, more things to take a look at. <clears throat> there are people, and you know some of them, who come into a group setting and they look to inject what they feel should be known. You ever had that? People come into a group setting and they feel some things. Get a bunch of family people together. How many? What's one topic you can talk about with family members that will ensure there will not be peace here today? <laughs> Politics is always a fun one, isn't it? We can ensure that. But here's the, here's the thing. We can get so caught up into something that we believe politically to be correct that I am willing to sacrifice all manner of things in order for people to know that one, I stand for this, one, I believe this, and two, this, and this is the truth. Whether you want to believe it or not, this is the truth. And we will sacrifice all kinds of things. Now again, I'm not telling you that there's not some things willing to, that are willing to sacrifice the peace for. There are. Well, we've got to make sure that we do it the right way. So there are people who come into your group, they look to interject whatever they, whatever they feel, they don't care about the harm that it will cause because they see their truth. They see what they perceive as good being injected into this group as beneficial and you all need to get it whether you want it or not. You all need to get it. Now God didn't assign this to them but they take it upon themselves and they see God in it. Now peacemakers, get this down, don't dis disregard the need for things like goodness and truth. They don't disregard that need. There is goodness. There are things that are good that are things that are not good. There are things that are truth. There are things that are not truth. That's, that's a given. If Miss Mandy was to make dinner and Max was to sit down and eat it and take a bite out of the dinner, he would know instantly if the dinner was good or not good, right? <laughs> Here's the thing, the dinner might be good to Max, and Mia might say, uh-uh, no. Now, I know this already from it. I know that a dessert that Max would absolutely love, Mia would say, uh-uh, no, 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 no. Does not have the ingredients that she, that she likes. She would determine it as not being good, whereas Max would determine it as being good. You may determine something as being good and beneficial that someone else has determined not to. But you need to have this good. You need to have this. I'm going to push this off on you. That goes over well. Challenging others to change. I think I wrote this in your outline. I hope I did. Challenging others to change, fix, fix error, or learn new things is very difficult in atmosphere of strife. Yet we constantly think we can do it. <laughs> we do. We think we will cause rapid change by getting people mad. And getting people angry at us. We say things. I don't care if they get mad. I said it. <laughs> what change can you get if you get people mad? It just closes them off. They aren't going to receive anything from there. If my goal is really to help people, to change them, then getting them in strife, getting them angry, getting them mad at me, isn't going to help. 
holding to an idea of accomplishing these things outside of peace is futile. You've got to create that peace in that peaceful setting. That's where you can bring change. person of peace looks to see the long road to reach goodness and truth and holding the opinions of God over our own. You may have some things that you have seen from God's Word are good. You may have some things that you've seen from God's Word that are truth. But you may not be able to get them there today. But if you establish peace, if you establish an atmosphere with no strife, you will have a much better way of getting there. You just won't get there today. It may be a month from now. It may be six months from now. But you see, we all feel like if I don't get that thing changed today, they're going to hell. They're not going to be blessed. I've got to change that. I've got to change it now. And we get this urgency. And we're willing to sacrifice things that God has told us are important to Him. A person who disrupts peace, holding to promote their own ideals, will not reach what they say they want to do because their desires are not God's. They are their own. They want to be seen as right, smart, anointed, you name it, more than they want to bring in God's light. Disrupting the peace is acceptable because my ideas of what is good and what is truth are way too important. Hmm. Now, as I already told you, I think I wrote this in here. I think it's in yours. It's in mine. What are the chances, the ideas that we are willing to sacrifice relationships, fellowship, even mentorships are not completely right and that we may change them down the road? Now, like we said, that's not to say that there aren't some. I'm going to give you a couple of examples here. Jesus did some things that disrupted the peace at home. How else are all his brothers angry at him? How is it that all his brothers would show up at meetings to disrupt the crowd? They felt so passionate that Jesus was wrong that they would show up at meetings to disrupt things. Remember that one time they were all outside saying, come on out here. <laughs> Who are my mothers and my brothers? <laughs> They're right here. Uh, you could tell some things had gone on there. Jesus only said what the Father told him to say, so apparently there's some things the Father told him to say that caused the problem. Now, they all came around. Jesus didn't change, but James came around. Some of his other brothers, they came around afterwards, but at the time of, of Jesus' death, none of them believed. So his brothers were against them. How about the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes? Did Jesus always say peaceful things to the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes? No, he did not. That didn't uh, go on. How about the, remember the, the big offensive sermon Jesus taught? Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will have no part of me. And everybody said, amen, amen. I don't understand that, but amen. <laughs> no, what happened to the people? They all left. Jesus turns to his 12 and he says, you're going to leave me too? And Peter had those famous words. You have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? Hmm. Jesus did some things that disrupted the peace, but he did it because the Father instructed him to. 
There are times that you will say some things that will disrupt the peace. But when you do it by the inspiration of God, you will have supernatural results. You will have results that God wants. There are prophets that were sent to people who said things that disrupted the peace. It's not what they were expecting to hear. It's not what they wanted to hear. But God needed them to hear it. And he would tell his prophets, you need to speak exactly what I tell you to speak. If you don't, then I will hold their blood at your, at your hand. That time has come. The trumpet needs to sound. There are people in your life, they need to have a trumpet sound, and you may be the trumpet. But too many times people are blowing their own trumpet, not the one that God gave them. I'm going to take a look at a story here. Two people. 1 Samuel 25. I know we've covered this before. I have no idea when because I didn't go and try and look it up. But in 1 Samuel 25, then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, have you ever had somebody important in your life die? Yeah. What did it do to you? Did it cause some sadness? Did it cause your emotions to get stirred up a little bit? How many of you all understand that this is not in the Scriptures at all? But when Samuel died, there's one verse in here about it, and then a story about David. How many of y'all know this had an effect on David? Who anointed David? Who was the first person in David's life who saw him as having value? Samuel is the first person. His father didn't. I don't know about his mom. But his father didn't. His brothers didn't. No one in his family did. They saw him as worthless and put him out there in a job that nobody wants to do. The brothers spoke disrespectfully of him because the dad spoke disrespectfully to him. And here comes Samuel. And when he finds out that... How many of y'all know David found out the rest of the story? Oh, the prophet comes to anoint one of your sons king and where am I? You have to go fetch me after he says none of these? Would that have an effect on you? And here's Samuel. He's the only one who believes that you've got something. And there's probably a lot more that happened between Samuel and David that are not even written down in the Scriptures. And then Samuel dies. And what we have with David is, uh, and David arose and went down into the wilderness of Paran. I don't know, I think he just kind of wanted to get alone. I think that was, uh, that was hard for him. Now, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the man, probably in his own opinion, was very rich. He was rich by a lot of people's standards. Uh, by David's standards, in some years to come, he's got nothing. But the... Verse 3, the, man, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. Now, if you want to get this picture of what's here, what we're saying is Abigail is a person who is very beautiful on the outside, 
and very beautiful on the inside. Nabel was opposite. He was very ugly on the outside and ugly on the inside. And these two were married. So he was of the house of Caleb. Everybody remember Caleb? He's a pretty good guy. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. David said to the young man, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is his son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away from each other, who break away each one from his master. He's accused of, who's David? Who's that? I don't know, David. Who is this guy? He may be some slave. He's broke away from his, uh, his master. But David knows, he knows better. Because if you just go out into the wilderness, there's robbers, there's people out there that can, that can do things to you. But David was watching over these guys. He just probably saw it as a good thing to do. There's some people here, we're just going to watch over them, we're going to help them. We're going to do some things. Um, we're going to take care of them. And so they were a wall. And they protected from anything, not only wild animals, but people who might come along and steal things from them. And they didn't lose anything. And so then David had an opportunity. He's got 600 men to feed on a feast day and apparently not a whole lot. So he says, hey, whatever you got, if you got some stuff, you can send it my way. you got lots of prosperity. If, if you got some things, can you send it my way? want to take care of these, these men. And he, uh, ah, who's, who's this David? And he doesn't say some real nice things. And he sends them on their way. Now get out of here. I'm not going to give you anything. I don't care what you did. Doesn't matter to me. Now he's got an attitude here. And how many of y'all know attitudes can be the enemy of peace? Attitudes can be the enemies of peace. You can have attitudes of a, a defeated attitude. you got people on the team that have a defeated attitude. Well, that can mess with your peace in this situation. you got a team at work. And one person feels like no matter what, the op, the, no matter what it is that we're supposed to be doing, that's too much. Ah, I can't get it done. I, can't, I just can't, can't do it. If um, Max and me, you guys are up here in the front, so I'm going to pick on you. If you guys were assigned by mom or dad to go out into the yard and you had something to do in the backyard. And, and Max has the attitude, oh, I can't do it. Too tired. That's too much for me. I can't, I'm too little. No, I can't get all that stuff done. And Mia comes out there and says, come on, let's go. We can get this done. If we work hard, we'll knock this out. Mia doesn't do that. <laughs> So if that's the kind of thing that happens, if you've got one person who's completely defeated and one person who's ready to go in there and take it, how many know that there will not be peace in this situation? 
If both people were defeated, would there be peace? No. An attitude of being defeated is not a peaceful attitude. If you're going to bring in an attitude of being defeated, you will bring in strife, disruption. You will not bring in peace. Attitude of being defeated won't do it. An attitude of being the victim will not do it. An attitude of unforgiveness will not do it. An, un an attitude of being overwhelmed will not do it. You've got to get out of these attitudes. You've got to get the attitudes that are in the Word of God. I am more than an overcomer. I can do all things through Christ. These are the attitudes that I need to have. An attitude free of worry. An attitude that is free of anxiety. These are the kind of attitudes that you need to have. This is what you need to bring along. If you're going to be a peacemaker, these are the things that you have to get. If you were going to be a peacemaker, you had two sides, and you're going to be a peacemaker, and you come in there and say, well, guys, I don't think we can do anything here, but we're going to give it a shot. Is it going to work? No. <laughs> they already don't think you're going to get it done. No, we've got to have the attitude. All right, look, we can get it done. Some of us have to make some sacrifices. You can't get everything that you want. But if you make some sacrifices, you make some sacrifices. We can get this thing done. We can get an agreement. We can get on the same page with this thing. You've got to have that attitude. If you don't, it's not going to work. Verse 11, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? So David's young men told, uh, turned on their heels and went back and they came and they told him all these words. Now just think of it this way. If you, let's say you were driving around the road and you got a flat tire and you didn't have the tools that you needed to fix the flat tire and you're stuck on the side of the road with a flat tire and somebody sees your plight and pulls up next to your car, gets out and says, I see you have a flat tire. I do. I, I just don't have the things I needed to fix it. Don't worry about it. I have everything I need to fix your flat tire and I'm going to fix it right here for you right now. How many of you are going to first off say, well, first off, tell me where you're from? <laughs> Unless I know where you're from, uh, you can't help me. We wouldn't do that. It wouldn't even come into our mind, would it? David has already helped them. They've already done it. The men have testified. I don't know where he's from. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back and they came and told him all these words. And David said to his men, every man gird up his sword. Now, that may be blind to you. What he is saying is, guys, let's go kill some people. That's what he's saying. He is, David is not in a peaceful mood right now. David is not a peacemaker right now. Usually David is. Right now, no. Now, he's in a bad spot. Samuel just died. His emotions are, are stirred up on the inside of him. And then somebody tells him you're not worth anything. Can you imagine the first guy who tells you you're worth something and then this guy shows up after he he's dead? You're not worth anything. Saul's telling him you're not worth anything. Other people around Israel, they're telling him he's not worth anything, though he has done so much for the country. Now Nabal wants to say that? You're not worth anything? <laughs> Let's show them what we're worth, guys. Let's go. Get your swords. We're going to go kill some people. That's what he's doing. Every man gird up his sword. David also girded up his sword. He's, I'm, I'm, I'm going out for this one. Yep, we're going to show them who David is. 
I'm going to stand here. I can just imagine David picturing this. I'm going to stand right over Nabal when him's that flat in the ground with my sword. You know who I am? David. <laughs> yep. About 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies. If you remember the stories, there's a reason why they divided up that way. Verse 14. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, now, uh, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. All right, so, they all know who Nabal is. Nabal is a scoundrel. He's not worth much. He just happens to have a lot of money. And we work for him. But Abigail, she knows what she's doing. Let's go to her. If anything can be done, she's the one to fix it. The reason is, because of all the people that are in the household, how many people have access to the goods of the household? Well, Nabal would. And his wife. So they went to, went to her. Now, if you're ever wondering, how does an evil, ugly, mean guy like Nabal marry a nice girl like Abigail? Probably because the marriages were arranged. And whoever her parents were did not do her any good service. But the workers, they know what kind of a man Nabal is. They don't try and candy coat it. They don't try and say something about Nabal to Abigail. Well, we know he's your husband and, you know, and nope. They say he's a scoundrel. Abigail says, yeah, he is. <laughs> then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread. Now, in case you're wondering, Abigail is our peacemaker. It's not David. David's not about to make peace. David's making war. Abigail is the peacemaker. She's the one we want to watch. So Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread. Now, why does she make haste? I mean, if it's the will of God, it's the will of God, right? If God wants it done, God wants it done. Why in the world be in a hurry? Just take your time. No. She knows. If we don't hurry, something's going to happen. So she made haste, took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five saves of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Now, think about this. When you go home today, I want you to take a look, scan around the house. Take a look around and see, just you know, on the spur of the moment, how many of you could put together 200 loaves of bread? How many could do that? That's what I thought. Two skins of fine of wine. Five sheep. Five. Five sheep already dressed. Not five sheep. Five sheep already dressed. Five says of roasted grain. One hundred clusters of raisins. And two hundred cakes of figs. And then load them on donkeys. How many would have enough donkeys? And she said to her servants, you could say put it in the SUV, I guess. Probably need more than one. 
And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Now she's the peacemaker. If you want to make peace and you're in a hurry to do it, do not involve people that are up strife. They will not help you. He would not have helped. If you involve a non-peacemaker in the process of peacemaking, it won't end well. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Hmm. She sees them. She gets down off her donkey. She goes on down. Now David had said, this is what David had, these are the words that David had spoke. Remember words of peace? Remember? What words you say? They're going to, they're going to energize something? They're going to be words of peace or they're going to be words of non-peace? Look at what David had said. This is what David had said. Past tense. Already said. Not saying it now. Already did. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. He has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. David's on the warpath. He is going to kill people. His intention is to slaughter every man in the household. Every one. That includes the ones that came to Abigail, and I think they had an idea, which is why they came to Abigail. They're fighting for their own life. So this is what David had said. Now, you may have said things like this too. You may have said things at the workplace when something didn't go the way that you wanted and somebody got promoted over you. Well, that's a fine thing. Look at all this that I have done for this company. Look at all these things I have brought here. And this is how they repay me? I see you speak those words. What's the stir up inside you? Peacemaker? No. No. Stirs up the same things in you that it did to, to David. So, Verse, uh, where do we leave off at? 22. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, Now listen to this. These words are important for you to understand what a peacemaker is. On me, my Lord, on me, let this inequity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. On who? On her. Was she there? She was not. Did she have any responsibility in this at all? She did not. Does that matter to her? Why? Because making peace is more important than what is good and what is true. We've got to make peace here. On me. Put it on me. It's on me. It's like uh, if you ever watch a football game and a quarterback made a pass and the receiver missed it. But the pass was too low, pass was too high. You know what the quarterback does? Good quarterback. You know what they do? It's me. It's me. If you ever see a quarterback in the back, you ever see him going like this, he's saying, that was on me. It's not your fault, it's mine. I did, I did that wrong. Now, sometimes quarterbacks don't do that. Sometimes they hit you right in the numbers. 
and they come up after you. You need to catch that ball. <laughs> They'll do that too. But when it's their fault, it's on me. What's Abigail doing? It's on me. So it's not on her. But she's putting it on me. Look, I know my husband's a scoundrel. He should never have been left alone. Should never have been left alone. Uh, we try not to leave him alone with these things. <laughs> yep. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of who? Your maidservant. She still takes all this on herself. This is on me. I'm not blaming anybody. See, a peacemaker is not looking for people to blame. When you were real young, you know, the, the, the two, three, four-year-old out there playing with the toys and the one child takes somebody else's toy, what do we do? That's mine. They took it. There's no... That's me. There's none of that. No, because their maturity level is pretty low. No. Who do, who do we blame? There's people to blame here. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel. Aha, see this thing is known. That this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause, or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. In other words, it's going to go real good for you when it does remember me. But don't be doing anything now that you're going to regret later on. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, who has sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. Do you get the idea that David was intent on his purpose? And David would have pulled this off? And David felt good about it? Felt like he had the hand of God with him? And he would have done it? Because he was holding on to what he saw as good, what he saw as truth, and he made judgments accordingly. And he's ready to carry them out. When you do that, you're not a peacemaker. If you're not judging, of course, according to what God has said is good and what God has said is true. Verse uh, 34. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me, come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. Now here's something about David. David received the correction. I put this in your outline. I'm pretty sure I left this one in there. One who has an attitude of peace can be brought back to it, but one who has an attitude of strife will be hard to move off it. And there are people like a Nabal who's just a person of strife. You're not going to move them off of that. 
But when you have a person of peace and they just got moved off of that, you can bring them back. David was brought back. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. He's got a feast. The people who protected his stuff didn't have a feast. He feels no remorse on this. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Now, not including someone is not the same thing as intending to deceive him. She didn't include him because first he would have disrupted the peaceful adventure and everyone would have been at risk. And second, he was full of wine and he wouldn't have responded the way he needed to. So she waited until the wine was gone. And she came and she told him. She hides nothing from Nabal. Just not telling him when he's not ready, not able to, to really hear it. Verse 38, Then it happened after ten days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as wife. Now look at all this. This is, this is great. How many of you have people that have been against you and against done things against you, said mean things about you, passed rumors, whatever, did stuff, and then calamity came upon them. How many of you wanted to be glad? How many of you wanted to jump for joy? Blessed be God! And then something came up inside you and said, don't do that, don't do that. That's not the attitude. You should be sad for them. I should be sad. But you're not. You're not sad. David is not sad. He's not hiding it. Blessed be God. He's gone. It's kind of like the, uh, the Wizard of Oz. The wicked witch is dead. <laughs> Got the old song? Got the old little people running around on the yellow brick road. Yep. Uh, verse 40. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. So he dies. And David didn't wait long. <laughs> she's, she's a good gal. She's had a rough life. Uh, she deserves better. And... That's, that guy's a scoundrel. I'm not waiting for any mourning, period. She obviously doesn't have, have any mourning for him. She's probably, glory to God, he's gone. Oh, I'm so glad. I don't have to put up with that anymore. So David immediately, he sends somebody out there, says, hey, will you marry me? Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. In other words, yes! <laughs> yes! Now, Now, think about this. How did the word of God describe Nabal in the beginning of the story? Poor? No, rich. He dies. Who's rich now? Abigail. And David wants to marry her. Who gets all the money? See, David just asked for a few, uh, just a meal for his guys, and instead he gets the whole house. He got the whole house. So Abigail arose in haste. <laughs> yes, get this before. So I don't want him to change his mind. She arose in haste and rode on a donkey attended by five of her maidens. Now, 
It did not say attended by all of her maidens. How many people here have five maidens? Anybody here have two? Anybody here have one? No maidens at all. She's got five that she can take with her and other ones she can leave at the house. I think she's doing pretty good. She had five maidens that she brought with her. And she became his wife. Uh, apparently, there's no courtship process. She showed up, they get married, that's it. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. <laughs> and remember, he was married before this. So Saul had given, uh, but Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. Now, being a peacemaker is not easy. It takes some of the qualities and maturity that we've already gone over. You've got to have these things going on if you're going to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers because not everybody will do it. Not everybody can do it. And you've got to be pushing to get the qualities and maturity in your life if you're going to be a peacemaker because more people are strife makers, not peacemakers. It is easier for us to make strife, not so easy to make peace. But God wants us to make peace. Some of the qualities you're going to need, steadfastness. You've got to make sure that you're not being moved off just because other people say some things. You've got to be steadfast. You've got to be patient. Don't let your emotions move you. You've got to be calm because things are going to get hostile. Other people involved are not going to be so, so calm. You have to have a level of calm about you. And that level of calm has to be a level of calm that can survive a storm. Storms going on, and you stay calm. God is training people up in storms that come up in life. Learn how to become calm. Learn how to be steadfast. Learn how to be patient. Learn how to be calm. You've got to be a person who has words of peace. If you go off like David did in the situation, start spouting off words like that, you are not going to be a peacemaker. You're going to be someone who needs a peacemaker. Now, what would have happened if David would have gone his way and David would have slaughtered all the men? What would have happened to all the stuff? All the stuff would have gone to David. But it would have gone to David by bloodshed. The word would have gotten around Israel. David just slaughtered one of the prominent families. Instead, he got all the stuff and none of that stuff, none of those things had to happen. Now, anyone can call strife. When I was writing this down, I'm, I'm thinking of Charles Barkley. How many people do not know who Charles Barkley is? How many people know who Charles Barkley is? He's one of those colorful figures. I, I, he's one of those guys I love listening to him talk. They can just, I just love listening to him talk. But I, I hear Charles Barkley saying this. Any knucklehead can call a strife. <laughs> That's how he would say it. So if you, you know Charles Barkley, you can picture it this way. Any knucklehead can call a strife. All you have to do is be selfish and uncaring. That's all. It's real easy for people to be selfish and uncaring. We come that way naturally. You don't have to do a thing and you can be one who brings strife. But if you're going to be a peacemaker, that requires a lot more. That requires the first off things that you consider to be good. You're ready to let go of some of those things for the longer, longer haul. How many times do you think Jesus had to let go of what he saw was good in order to get to the people what they needed? How many times did Jesus have to let go, not push what he knew is truth, 
because of where the people were. Just because a thing is true does not mean that they need to have it. And so Jesus was careful about those, about those things. You're going to have to learn, and the more mature you become, the better able to do it. You're going to have to learn how to forego some things. Well, this would be good. But if I do this in this situation, it's going to bring bad things about. This, this would be beneficial for me. But it's not going to be beneficial for the kingdom of God. So I'm going to put these things aside. This is truth. I know this to be truth. But I'm going to put these things aside because God desires that we make peace and that there be peace there. The Word of God has said in the, in the Word, we looked at some of it last time, as much as depends on you, be at peace with all men. There's some parts that just don't depend on you. And there's people in your life that just want to be strife and bring strife all the time. You may not be able to help that. And that's the way they want to be. That's the way they're going to be. They have words of strife. They have words that are not peaceful words and they speak these things out. They charge the atmosphere with these things. Only so much that you can do about all that. But anyone can cause strife. You can go into any situation and get people mad at you. It's not hard. But a peacemaker, that requires more. I got this question for you. Are you up to the task? Are you up to the task of a peacemaker? Goodness, truth, and judgment, these are important. But are they more important than the situation you're in and bringing peace to that situation? I put this in there in your outline for you to fill in. Are the things dear to you more important than the things dear to God? That's what it comes down to. Are the things that are dear to you more important than the things that are dear to God? God has said, peacemakers, man, they bless me. Peacemakers bless me so much, I just like to bless them. Here's Abigail. Think of it from her point of view. Stuck in a bad marriage with a bad man who creates strife all over the place. And she's always going out there having to clean up stuff. And he probably got mad at her for cleaning up some of the stuff. You know how that could be with, with that people with that kind of attitude. This is, she's looking at her life. My life can't change. I'm married to this man and this is the way it's going to be. But her situation changed. And instead of being married to Nabal, a scoundrel, within a matter of two weeks, she was married to the next coming king of Israel. She's going to live in the palace. And she thought she had it good with the amount of maidservants she has now. She's going to have a lot more. A lot more gold, a lot more silver. Right now we're being rich because we count sheep. In the coming years, she's going to be rich because she's counting gold. Which is richer. Things changed for her. But she was a peacemaker. And she took on things on herself that she did not have to. She did so because she knew she was going to protect the people of the household. 
Will you give up some things to be a peacemaker? Or are you going to hold on to everything that you see as good and everything that you see as truth and not let any of it go? Don't have the attitude I did when I was down at King's and just disrupt everybody's peace <laughs> because of a truth. Don't need to do that. You've got to learn to get, get past all those things. Because in an attitude, in a, in a place where there is a lack of strife, you can accomplish much. You can bring a whole lot together. Years ago, I probably told you this, this story. But one of, the most, one of the most impacting memories I had down at the, the pizza place, the Ken's Pizza Spot, happened early on. I wasn't there for more than two months. And one of the most impacting things that ever happened to me happened in that time. It was during the time when we had our first manager who was a scoundrel. He was dealing drugs. He had the back. He was, he just, the atmosphere in the place was terrible. I was questioning whether God even wanted me there. That God had missed it and leading me to this place. It was just terrible. And I remember this one day. I don't even know why I was on day shift. We must have been off from school, and I volunteered to, to come in or whatever it was, and I was there in the day shift. New to the day shift. I've only been at the restaurant for a couple of months. And we had a day shift that was kind of like what would happen if the blessings of God were to be overwhelming. We were overwhelmed with blessings. And we had more customers that came in on that day shift for the pizza and the buffet than we had seen. We were not ready for it. We needed twice the staff to accomplish what we did. And the people that were on the staff was the manager, myself, a waitress who's still a friend to this day, and a rookie who was more rookie than I was. It was his first couple of days. This was his first week in, the, in there, and I think he hadn't been in more than one or two days. It may have been his first day. It may have been his second day, but he was new. And we were trying to take all this stuff on, and we barely survived having food out on the, on the uh, buffet, having the salad bay filled, and keeping dishes up. We were not trying to get all the dishes done. We were trying to have enough dishes to put dishes on the table so that people could eat. They were very often getting very hot cups and very hot plates because they had just come out of being cleaned. Finally, around 1 o'clock, the crowd started to die down. And we have, from 1 o'clock, you have until 1 to about 4.30, and you have a list of prep that had to be done. And we had to get all the prep done before the night shift came in. We had to mop the place. We had to do all the dishes. We had to clean up everything. Except this was no normal day. This was a very unusual day. This is actually a day that happened about once a week. But on this particular day, it was called Leprino Day, and a, a uh, truck would pull up, the Leprino truck, which would deliver all of our supplies. And we would get all of our tomato sauce, all of our meats, all of our cheeses, all of our boxes. Everything that came in except for produce to supply that restaurant came in on that truck. And when that came in, you had to rotate out all the old cheeses, all the old meats, and put in the new ones back and then put the other ones up in front. You had to get all the flour rotated. 
put the old, new flower in the bottom, the old flower up on the top. Whatever it is that came in, we had to take care of it on that day. We know all this is coming. At 1 o'clock, the manager turns to us and says, Guys, I can still see it. It was 40-some years ago. I still see it. It was such, so burned in my memory. Guys, I hate to do this to you, but I have to go. And with that, he just walked out of the restaurant. I was stunned. Chris, the waitress that was on, she's stunned. She, she's mad because she's been there long enough to, to know stuff. She's mad. She's angry. She's mad. And I'm, I mean, I know some stuff, but I'm still pretty new. And then the rookie, he knows nothing. He knows nothing. Now, we could create strife. How many of y'all know we had some words that we could say could create some strife? This isn't fair. Well, I'm not paid to do this. I'm leaving. If he can leave, I can leave. Let's just lock the doors, and when the night shift comes in, surprise! <laughs> we could have been saying words like that. If you say words like that, what kind of atmosphere are you creating? Not a good atmosphere. We had the settings for the worst day of our entire lives. To this day, Chris and I occasionally have talked, haven't talked about it, about, not in years, but we would occasionally talk about this day as one of the best days we ever had. We turned to each other and said, all right, we got three of us. What are we going to do? So we, um, we devised a strategy. Chris has been there for a long time. She was talented enough. She said, I'll run the front. That meant any customer came in, she took care of. She got their drinks. She got their stuff, whatever they needed. She made their pizzas. She cooked their pizzas. She answers the phone. She takes care of the salad bar. She did everything in the front. Everything. We took the rookie. What do you do with the rookie? He doesn't know what he's doing. Rookie, wash dishes. <laughs> you just, just wash dishes. You're going to be there for a while. Just wash the dishes and clean up the, clean up the dishes. Now, beside doing the front, Chris also had to get the prep done. So she's cutting the vegetables and stuff for the salad bar for later on that, that night for the night shift. So she's doing all of that. And so I said, I'll take care of Leprino. And I came on out and helped uh, Chris when I could, and plus there was the cleanup, mopping the floor and all this sort of stuff. So we had, everybody had their duties, and so we set about to do it. And before Leprino came, I was out there, I pulled all the cheese out. This is not how you do it. This is how we did it. Pulled all the cheese out, had it all out of the way. When Leprino came, I took the cheese, put it right back into the spot, and then uh, put the meat Place is empty, just put it right in there. Flour, all the old stuff has moved off. Put it right on there, just put it all in, then rotate the other stuff on. I got all the Lollaprino done. She took care of the front. Our dish guy, he took care of the dishes. 4.30, the manager comes walking on in. He looks around, and he sees me. I'm mopping the floor, getting the floor all shined up for him. He looks around, there's no dishes. Salivar is full. His first words out of his mouth. Oh, did Leprino not come today? And I just looked up to him and says, no, it came. And that was it. Put up the mop, everything was done, and we went. That was a victorious day. I still remember that day because it could have been a day I, we could have tore ourselves down. We could have stirred up strife. None of us went around talking about how bad the manager was. None of us talked about how he should be fired. We all set about to do our thing because if you're going to be a peacemaker, you've got to have words of peace. 
you got to be talking about peace. You want to have peace in your families? Stop talking words of strife. Stop talking words of, well, they're no good. Well, they're nothing. Oh, they'll never come out to anything. Stop saying words of strife. Say words of peace. Be a person of peace. Get that peace going on the inside of you. I don't know how long it was after that incident that he uh, was fired, but uh, glory to God, he was fired. <laughs> he wasn't around anymore. But you see, we have the ability to take things that are going to be terrible and turn them around, or we have the ability to take things that are terrible and let them become terrible. David was in a situation. This thing could become terrible. Abigail said, I'm going to intervene. She became a peacemaker between David and Nabal. The peace was made. And things were done. And in two weeks, her life was going to change even more. It all depends on you. She was a peacemaker. Would you say that her life was blessed? If she had not picked up that role, would her life have been as blessed? No. Your life will be better if you become a person of peace just because you're a person of peace. But beside that, God says he'll bless you. Trust him. Are the things that are dear to you more important than the things that are dear to God? If you can answer that question, no, his things are more important. Then every day you understand what dying to self is. I am here to live for you. I'm not here to live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for you, Thursday, Friday, Saturday for me, weekends, toss up. That's not what you're, what you're here to do. You're here, sell out. I'm going to be a peacemaker. Don't be a person who comes in and interjects your viewpoint. Interjects your wisdom. Even though you know it's going to cause problems. Even though you know it's going to be an issue. How many of y'all know there's people in your life that you will not share things with because if you do, they will disrupt the peace. They will tell you stuff. Well, it didn't have to be that way. Well, you could have done... Don't be that person. Don't let that kind of thing go on. Be a peacemaker. Bring peace into your life. It matures you. It grows you up. But you can be a peacemaker. Right now, maybe you can be a peacemaker at level three. That's all right. Strive to become a peacemaker at level four. Then look to be a peacemaker at level five. Then don't sit there and say, God, look at me. I'm a peacemaker at level I'm a level five peacemaker. Ooh, I bet you're pretty, pretty glad to have me on the team, huh? No, because you're not level six yet. Once you get to level six, go to level seven. And you just keep on going. And you can just be that person. And God says, no matter how high the temp gets, this person is going to be a peacemaker. We can send them anywhere. I can use them in all kinds of things. And God will find ways to use you if you'll develop it. But if you're going to be constantly on whatever is important to you is important, and you won't get there. Would you all stand up with me? Father God, I thank you. The discall to be a peacemaker is far more involved than we may have thought it was. But you have equipped us. You've given us the things that we need. We just need to develop them. We just need to learn how to use them. I thank you, Father, that we're growing, we're getting better. 
And the situations that used to set us off before, they don't set us off anymore. Because we've matured. I thank you for the qualities of steadfastness that grow in us. I thank you for the quality of patience, calmness, and peace. I thank you. These are always growing on the inside of us, making us stronger. And the more we walk in them, the more formidable we are against the enemy. Give you the praise and the glory for it. Every head bowed. You're here today and you say, there are some situations that I could be a better peacemaker than I have. Just raise your hand and just raise it before God. God, there's there's situations I can be a better peacemaker. Father, you see these hands that are raised. Help us to be better peacemakers. Help us to be like Abigail. Did not care about their sense of pride, well-being, laid it all out there. That's what we want to do. Lay everything out for the peace of the kingdom. Bring peace between you and the people we're in touch with and not strife. Help us to learn when to speak truth that may cause a disruption and when to just be quiet. Thank you for the way that you teach us. Give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Glory to God. Well, tomorrow morning, around 11 o'clock, you will see a teaching by by Brother Hagen that will come out. This is a a healing service, and he was teaching, uh, giving some good teaching in the beginning. But then you also see some of the things that go on in the anointing of healing. It's all done in less than an hour. It's not one of their two or three hour services. It's all done in less than an hour. You're going to see the word of uh, knowledge used in, in uh, healing. And you'll have a, a good time with that. There was a post that was supposed to go out on Tuesday this week because Brother Rick Brenner was doing some end times teaching I thought you might uh, benefit from. And so on Tuesday, I had to set it up for it to post on uh, Monday's teaching from that, but it didn't post. I got a notice up today that, hey, this one didn't, didn't post. So I reposted it this morning. If you see it, that's from last week. So if you see the link for Monday, if you like it, then uh, go Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's, he posts them on Facebook, so you kind of have to be on Facebook on that one. You could probably find the same things on YouTube, because I know he posts things both ways, but when he, uh, it's, it's on YouTube probably in a different place. But if you did the, the search, you uh, might be able to find it. But if you have any difficulty with it, let me know. I can uh, maybe help you out with that. But uh, you'll see that link. It came up here this morning. On that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, he'll have a teaching each day, and you can get some some uh, wonderful teaching on them times that be available for you. Have a great day. For some people, I'm going to bless them. Don't forget, next week we have our coverage.